Faith is hard. And life is broken. We walk by faith, not by sight. And some of us, even right now, are being called to walk through things that are challenging what we know to be true about God. We have to step where we cannot see and undergo what we do not understand because we are walking by faith and not by sight. And some of the circumstances that we are facing are challenging what we know to be true about God in his goodness and in his faithfulness and in his mercy and his infinite grace. Now, of course, there are great challenges to unbelief that last for all of life and for, tragically, all of eternity. But this morning, I'm not, that would relate to another message. I'm talking about the challenge of believing the gospel and walking forward in life. We know what the promises of God proclaim, and they are wonderful. We believe them to be true. We know that God cannot lie. But in the crosshairs of the circumstances which challenge what we know to be revealed about who God is, we begin to, and here's the word, listen for it in Romans 4, we begin to consider what is true and what we are depending upon. Belief is a challenge, is it not? Faith is stretching ourselves out on what God revealed about Jesus Christ. Are we big faith people at Calvary? Are we big God people at Calvary? Or do the broken things that we face as God's people snuff out and begin to belittle and, here's another word that will show up in the text, weaken our faith. What are we facing this morning? And to whom are we looking as we face what we are facing in order to find security and comfort in the circumstances of our lives? Come with me to Romans chapter 4, where Paul holds up Abraham as an example of a man who faced a stout challenge and chose to believe the promise of God. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. This morning reading Romans 4, 16 through 25. Romans 1. The horrible sinners, the debaucherous, worldly. Yes, Eric, all those wicked people out there. They need Jesus. Romans 2. The salt of the earth the good folks who are faithful. We've got it together. Paul says those moralists need Jesus. What about the people who are religious? The people who really give themselves earnestly to being religious? Paul said, if their faith is earnestly placed in being religious, they need Jesus too. And so he he concludes Romans 4, saying that Jesus is for all those folks, Jew, Gentile. 4.16. That's why it depends on faith. 
in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, Romans 1.1 The book of Romans, Paul at the front door tells us what it's about. It's about God's gospel. So he's explaining it chapter after chapter for the first eight chapters. 9 through 11, he goes through addressing the what about the Jewish people is going to happen to them. 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, he talks about, okay, when we embrace the gospel, this is how we are supposed to. To live. Now, there are three facets to the promise of God that I want to begin with in explaining the gospel. Jesus is God's promise to humanity. Let's go here first, and then we'll ask, secondly, what are the challenges that Abraham faced that are similar to the challenges that we face? If we want to understand what promise God made to humanity, just look at Jesus, because Jesus is God's promise to humanity. Three facets. First of all, he was given up in death to take away our sin. Look at verse 24 and 25. And you may say, Eric, hasn't he already talked about this? And the answer to that is yes. But for the Apostle Paul, keeping the cross before the people of God was very important. It will be counted to us who believe, verse 24, in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Verse 25, he was delivered up. Now this is a special word. Few of you are in law enforcement. You understand this word. This was a technical term in the first century for a defendant being remanded into the custody of the authorities. It was said he was delivered up. That would be an English rendering of this word. He was given over to the authorities, uh, the police force who would take care of the defendant. Turned over, hand over, given up. 
It's the same verb that's used in 1 Corinthians 13.3 where Paul said, look, love is critical. You can even do extraordinary things like deliver up your body to be burned in a great exploit of faith. But if you have not love, it's all for naught. That's the word, delivered up. So here's the idea that God in Jesus Christ delivered up his son to death. Notice that that idea is at the core of the gospel. Eric, I'm trying to wrap my mind around Christianity. What is the New Testament saying? It is the story of Jesus Christ and the announcement about what he did. He was delivered up on our behalf. Notice in verse 25, he is delivered up. Here's the word for. This is what his delivering up accomplished for our trespasses. That is, he died becoming culpable for our sin. He died as our substitute. He was delivered up to this end as our substitute. In that sense, his death accomplished something. If you remember the video from last week, that's what uh, C.M. Ward was getting at in, in, in that video. He, he accomplished something. Uh, it wasn't in vain. The reason he was delivered up to resolve our transgression, our sin. To position those who believe in him to be forgiven. Now, the, the drawdown and withdrawal from Afghanistan was tragic. We've been there for 10 years. I'm not making a political statement, but can you imagine if you were a gold star family and one of your sons or daughters had... Uh, lost their lives in that combat in Afghanistan, and yet in the end, we just pull out and leave and leave billions of stuff there. How would you have felt? Their cry has been, their death didn't mean anything. Their death was in vain. It had no purpose. Nobody can look at the cross and say, that that didn't mean anything. In fact, in Paul, in describing the gospel, says, no, no, it was for our trespasses. Now note to self, and you especially realize this when you're around a God who is holy, our trespasses are a thing, and they're an issue, and it needs to be resolved. But God, in Christ, delivered him up for their resolution, and in believing in him, we come to be Forgiven. He was given in death to take away our sin. That's one facet of the promise. Now, the second facet is that he was raised from the dead to make the gift of righteousness possible. Look at verse 25. It ends, and raised for our justification. But he not only discusses the resurrection in verse 25, he discusses it in verse 24. Who, speaking of the Father, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now, after Dwight Lyman Moody died and finished his great run telling other people about Jesus all over America, went to the British Isles. Uh, this is in the 1890s. Uh, the man who picked up his mantle and did the same kind of work was a man named Wilbur Chapman. And while we may not know of his name, once upon a time we sang one of his hymns, and that is the hymn, One Day. Uh, and there's a line in the chorus that's rising, he justified, freely forever. Someday he's coming, a glorious day. 
it, it's, it's, but he has this turn of phrase, rising he justified freely forever. It's like, hey, Wilbur, where in the world did you get that idea? What are you doing tying the resurrection to our being made right with God? Well, if he, we would ask him that this morning, he'd say, well, why don't you open to Romans 4, 25. Delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That the resurrection was the ultimate sign of victory and accomplishment for Jesus. He did what he said he was going to do. He resolved the guilt and penalty of our sin. And in being raised, he positioned everyone who would believe in a place where we could be forgiven and be made right with God through being given the gift of righteousness, which comes by faith. And so the resurrection plays a critical part. He was raised from the dead to make the gift of righteousness possible. Eternal life, the promise Jesus Christ brings to humanity in the invitation to believe. The resurrection is a supernatural event that has changed everything. Think of what Jesus said when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He's praying in John 17. Uh, John 17, 3, he prays, And this is life eternal, that they might know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So here we are talking about the gospel again this Sunday. I must stop and ask you, have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you placed your trust in Christ as singularly the only hope you would have to be accepted by God. God generously offers eternal life, offers forgiveness from our transgressions, offers hope in life and hope in death through believing in Jesus. And when we believe in him, we're given the gift of righteousness. Have you reached a place in your own spiritual journey? where you have placed your faith in Jesus. If not, has God brought you here this morning for that purpose? To have it be the intersection of your life apart from Jesus and a new beginning in life, knowing Christ as your Savior as you give yourself to Him. Christ delivered up His life on the cross so that we could be saved in faith we deliver up our lives to God in embracing his son. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. If God is opening your heart, you say, Eric, I don't even know how to get started. Trust in Jesus Christ. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your righteousness. Don't trust in coming to church or saying the right words in prayer or Trust in Christ and what he has done. You can do that right where you are seated. Just saying, Lord, I'm listening to Eric talk and you're opening my heart to belief. And this morning, I give myself to Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner. You're a savior. I want to begin with you. And if you're beginning with Christ, how we would love to be next to you would encourage your heart. Now let's talk about the third facet of this promise, and that is that faith in the promise will bring us to life and hope. Remember 324, it's a gift, 
and are justified by his grace as a gift. It's not earned or deserved. The gift is eternal life, and it's a free gift. Many of you look pleasant this morning, and, um, you know, you, you got an extra hour of sleep. There's a good cause for it, you know. Some of you looked a little chagrined. Made me wonder if your Powerball ticket wasn't drawn last night. You know, $1.5 billion was a drawing. It, there wasn't a winner. They're going to draw again tomorrow night. It'd be $1.9 billion, you know. Do we even have any concept in Western culture to understand how much more glorious eternal life and knowing God through Jesus Christ is than hitting the Powerball? tomorrow night at 1.9 billion. Hope in life. You've been around anyone who's dying recently? Got a call this week, Monday night. Somebody trying to get a hold of me. Long time ago, I had arranged, yeah, I'll do your funeral when it comes. And he thought it was bending and coming. And it may be in a process of demise. And um, had him in a hospital in South Dayton, so I thought, well, that's 48 miles away. I wanted to talk to me. And it's one thing to have a conversation over the phone in those settings. It's another thing to look, look you in the face. Had such a sweet time together. I'll tell you what, uh, I actually love those conversations. They're the most real conversations that I've ever had. Because everybody just gets down to the issues that matter, and there's no sense in talking about stuff that doesn't matter and you get right on it. And it was a very sweet time celebrating our hope in Jesus. Hope in life, hope in death. Do you realize that what verses 24 and 25 are saying is that Jesus' death has changed ours? Do you realize that Jesus' resurrection promises ours will be? You talk about a glory in that. God gave Andy and me three children, now grown and married. So we had three weddings, and we had three renditions of pouring over the invitation list, of course. And when you get there, it's like, you know, you don't want anybody to be offended, and, you know, you don't don't have an infinite bandwidth, you know, and so, you know, you you start out at 5,000, you get to 2,500, you know, then you get to 1,500, and you think, you know, this is not going to work, you know. But anyway, you pour over these things. I'll tell you what. Everybody is invited by God to Jesus Christ. Everybody's on the list of invitation. Whosoever will may come. Jesus stood up. It's free offer of the gospel. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for My yoke is easy and my burden is light and you shall find rest for your souls. Augustine says man's heart is restless until it finds rest in God. What the apostle is saying in Romans chapter 4 is, you know what, Jesus, if you're Jewish, come to Jesus. But he also says if you're a pagan, come to Jesus. If you've been around the law of God, and you've been trying to keep it, come to Jesus. If you've never heard of the law of God, come to Jesus, because Jesus is for the Jew, and he's also for the Gentile. That's what he's doing. For the promise, verse 
16. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Verse 13 of chapter 4, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, he'd be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's, it's for, for, for everyone, the Jew and the Gentile. We're invited to embrace the promise and to believe. Say, oh, Eric, yeah, when we believe, that's when all of our problems cease. Well, no, you actually accrue some problems when you believe that you don't have when you're an unbeliever. And let's talk about the challenge of faith. We need God's grace to believe the promise, verse 16. Now, are gospel churches honest about the challenge of faith? Let me talk about four notes of challenge. First, faith seems preposterous to our age. Look at verses 17 and 18. Say, Eric, why are you bringing up the preposterous nature of faith? Well, if you are Abraham and you're 100 years old and your wife is near your age and God says you're going to have a child and be the father of a great nation, your first impulse may be, yeah, right. Now, how's that going to happen? So he was faced with something preposterous, but so are we. Believers are challenged by the spirit of our age, which works against people of faith. I may have read Craig Gay's quote to you before, The Way of the Modern, or Why It is Tempting to Live as if God Does Not Exist as a subtitle. He says this, Contemporary society and culture so emphasize human potential and human agency and the immediate practical exigencies of here and now that we are, for the most part, tempted to go about our daily business in this world without giving God much thought. Indeed, we are tempted to live as though God does not exist, or at least as if his existence does not practically matter. In short, one of the most insidious temptations fostered within contemporary secular society and culture, a temptation rendered uniquely plausible by the ideas and assumptions embedded within modern institutional life, is the, attention, the, the temptation to practical atheism. He goes on to say, yet because practical atheism is so deeply embedded in the central institutional realities of our society and culture, in political life and science and technology, in the economy, in the production and transmission of culture, the threat that it poses to the church and to truly human existence in general is not always immediately evident. Indeed, practical atheism has become so disarmingly attractive in the contemporary situation that we have actually embraced it within our churches and not only in the so-called secular theologies of the last generations, but more significantly in the ordinary practice of Christian ministry. The contemporary mental climate is such that faith and prayer are rather routinely eclipsed by the practical efficacy of expertise and technique. How influenced are we by such thinking at Calvary Baptist Church? This week I thought of orientation at every university campus, public university in America uh, for incoming first-year students. And I thought of the rhetorical advice that Jesus Christ uses in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, he said, you have heard that it has been said, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, he who looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. So he uses this device, you have heard that it has been said, but I say to you. And Jesus turned their worldview on its ear and helped point out that they were missing the whole import of the law of God. Enter freshman orientation and its collision with gospel Christianity. Good little kids that have grown up in our church take off for NKU, and I'm not picking on NKU, name your favorite uh, public university, and they go in and sit down at orientation, and I, I'll tell you what the message is. Here's the message. You have heard that it has been said, 
but I say to you, and it's a total reorientation of a worldview. And it's about as far away from gospel Christianity as you can get. And are we helping our students? Are we as a congregation thinking through the implications of gospel Christianity? Pascal, who died in the uh, 17th century in 1662, he's 39 years old, a French kind of mathematician, philosopher, Christian. He said, my faith has reasons that my reason doesn't even understand. I love that quote. And he's not from a dullard. He's, some of you have read his little, the French word for thoughts is pensis, and that's the name of his book published in English. Just last week, if you're praying for with us on Access Calvary, there was one request for our university students and the challenge of living as a gospel Christian in that public university environment. You say, Eric, well, where, where'd you ever get that? I got that out of a conversation last week with two girls at university. Ours is a reasonable faith. It's not irrational. Are we asked to believe things that are beyond our understanding? Absolutely. Creation, out of nothing, in six 24 days. Virgin birth, resurrection, healing of the sick. Big fish swallowing prophets and spitting them out. Living through the harrowing experience. That's a part of the fiber of our faith, which doesn't fit into any postmodern worldview of how to understand reality. And yet we're there. Now, I'm not given to quote Karl Barth too much. He, of course, is the father of neo-orthodoxy and really took uh, Protestantism in the West in liberal ways. He has a stunning quote on faith and what was called for from Abraham, who looked down the barrel at his age and his wife and said to the promise of God, yes, I believe. What could be more irrational and laughable ridiculous and impossible than God's word to Abraham. Moreover, all the articles of our Christian belief are, when considered rationally, just as impossible and mendacious and preposterous. Faith, however, is completely abreast of the situation. It grips reason by the throat and strangles the beast. It affects what the whole world and all that is in it is impotent to do. But how can faith do this? By holding on to God's word and by accounting it right and true, however stupid and impossible it may appear. But this me- by this means did Abraham imprison his reason. And in the same fashion do all other believers who have entered the dark recesses of faith throttle reason, saying, listen, reason, you blind and stupid fool that understands not the things of God. Cease your tricks and your chattering. Hold your tongue and be still. Venture no more to criticize the word of God. Sit down, listen to the words, and believe in him. So do the faithful achieve what the whole world is incompetent to achieve, and thereby they do our Lord God's supreme and notable service. I appreciate his vision. And how many of us have found faith so challenging? Ours is a reasonable faith. It's not irrational But it is challenging to believe in gospel Christianity in our age. Now, the second facet is New Testament faith is not blind to the challenges of belief 
there's one verb in verse 19 that's really important for us to lay hold of. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as has been told, so shall your offspring be. I love that turn of phrase there. The culture can tell us, oh, you're a fool. You gospel Christians don't ever consider the stout challenges that are there. Think of verse 19 and what Abraham must have felt like. He did not weaken in faith when he, and here's the verb, considered. When he considered his own body. I mean, let's face it. The book of Hebrews says, one man as good as dead. Hebrews eleven twelve in describing Abraham. He's impotent. His wife is postmenopausal. And God tells him, you're going to be a great nation. What is more preposterous than that? Okay, virgin birth. Doesn't that look pretty desperate? By the way, have you ever been in a situation that looked to you from your vantage point as pretty desperate? I mean, well, how, how desperate, Eric? Well, I mean, here Abraham's prayed it out. He's a hundred. And his wife, long ago, has lost the faculty to conceive a child with him. And God says, you're, you're going to have a child. That would seem pretty preposterous. And yet, the turn of phrase is so good. In hope, he believed against hope. Maybe as you sit here this morning, your heart is full of hope, but it's in a fight, fighting against hope because you know the stout challenge that is before you. You know, it's okay to say to ourselves and to the Lord, and we need to be honest with our kids as they grow up, it's tough to believe. I don't see now how all this resolves. But the resolution is coming. It's where Abraham landed after the consideration that is really cool. This was not the first time that he had been challenged to believe the Lord. He had already left Babylon. Then his dad dies, and he, he, he leaves his dad, buries his dad on the way down, gets there. and The Lord appears to him again, but he waits it out and waits another 15 years. And then it's like, now it's going to happen. Oh. You know, and his wife, and we can all understand her laughter. Of course, that's behind the name Isaac, of course, laughter. Uh, she laughs when she hears about it. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Are you standing up this morning unwavering? The old King James phrase is staggering at the promise of God. Are you, is anybody staggering? I understand the stagger, do you? He was unwavering. Robert Dick Wilson was a professor at Princeton Seminary, and then he left with a group of conservatives to found the uh, Westminster Theological Seminary in the 20s. And he retired, a venerable professor, and he heard that a former student was coming back to preach in chapel. He saw, I'm going to go listen to him. So he went, and he heard the message, and he went up to him afterwards. Can you imagine uh, being the plebe who offered the message to the seminary? And, and he uh, 
He said, well, I won't be back to hear you preach. The guy was taken aback. He said, what? I won't be back to hear you preach. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, I come once. And I come for the singular purpose of finding out whether or not the preacher is a big godder. He said, you're a big godder. And you'll be fine in ministry. And that was the end of the conversation. He said, I come once to see whether or not you're a big godder. By the way, if, if Robert Dick Wilson came to Calvary this morning, what would he find? Are we big godders or not? I mean, are we good while everything's great? Do we weaken and shudder when it gets tough? Because believing the Lord is a challenge and tough at times. Faith in God's promise can be weak or unwavering. Look at verses 19 and 20. Again, he staggered not at the promise of God. That's the old King James phrase. Two terms here to notice. Verse 19, weaken. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver. Should we put those two adjectives, weakening, wavering, underneath the resume of our faith? Did you note that verse 20 says he grew strong in faith? Faith can grow. Are we growing in our capacity to trust the Lord? One of the glories of being a pastor and visiting with people and suffering has been to have my faith belittled by what I was around in congregants. People facing devastating circumstances who were at rest and peace in the Lord while I'm dying a thousand deaths inside for what they're going through, and they were ministering to me, inviting me to trust in him. Wow. Isn't that what Andre Crouch wrote? Through it all, we've learned to trust in Jesus. Through it all, we've learned, there's a learning curve. So that leaves us with three questions. Are we a believer? Is our faith weakened? Are we growing strong? Who are we at Calvary? Weak faith or unwavering faith? The Lichtes who were here worked on the job on the Student Life Center. They live in Niceville, Florida, and they're a part of a disaster response team of Christians in Florida. And there was a big hurricane that blew in and hit a place, the, the, it, like the center of the coming into the panhandle a few years ago was, I remember the little place called Moscow Beach, Florida. And the whole thing was wiped out, except for one place. It's fascinating. This guy, this engineer, had decided he was going to build a hurricane-proof house. So he did. So it's right, his beachfront property, you can see the pictures. Uh, if I hadn't thought about it so late, I'd have shown you a picture. Uh, but it, there's, everything is utterly devastated and gone. And then there's his house. And it's right there. Do you know our anchor holds, though the angry surges roll? You know, Abraham could have written that hymn, could he not? Because uh, if we're talking about who's going to have the most preposterous circumstance to face, Abraham wins, does he not? Okay, Mary. By the way, you know what Mary said? Be it done unto me according to your will. Wow. Is that us? Finally, Abraham becomes our father in the faith as we believe that God is able to fulfill his promise. Look at verse 21. He did not, uh, verse 21. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, verse 20, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Giving glory to God. You say, Eric, I want my life to give glory to God. Then believe the Lord, verse 20. In believing, Abraham's life brought glory to God. You say, well, how did he believe? What was at the crux of his belief? How did it work for him? He was thoroughly convinced that he could deliver on his promise. And when you get there, you can rest in the hammock of what he has said is true and what he has promised to us. God is able to do what he promised. Who is the God of the Bible revealed here? Look at verse 17. Is he not the one who brings life out of death, the one who creates out of nothing. If he can do that, everything else is small potatoes to him. You say, Eric, it doesn't feel like small potatoes. It feels like I have a rototiller underneath my rib cage, and it just keeps going on with infinite turns. And I'm being devastated by what I'm facing. And cannot life in a broken world feel like that? Oh, the Lord is near. The Lord has promised. Yeah, Eric, you don't understand. This is pretty preposterous. Well, Abraham would understand. Would he not? It boils down to the question of the ability to God. He's able. Verse 16, many of us are not Jewish, but we're children of Abraham, because just like Abraham, we believe. We become in belief just what Abraham became. He became righteous with a gift. Verse 16, that's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise would rest on grace and be guaranteed, faith is not a leap in the dark closing our eyes to the problems, but it's the opening our eyes to the God of the Bible and concluding that he is God and one most sufficient to save. Let's pray. Father, as a congregation, there are several facing stout and hard challenges to faith. There's a whole group of young people growing up in our culture does nothing to support their desires to follow Jesus and live out this life as a gospel Christian. Let us take a cue from Abraham who decided in life he was going to throw in his lot with you and believe what you would reveal to be true. For those facing hard things, Lord, honor their faith. Show them your pleasure. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who are wavering in unbelief, help us to stagger not and shore up our stand on the promise of God. We love you. Minister to hearts as we sing. Listen to the cries of our hearts as we pray. We want to be found a group that believes God. Belief is pretty fundamental. And when we look at your ability, it makes belief a lot easier. You are an able God who is good. Hear us as we sing and pray. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.